Good afternoon, everyone, and uh, welcome to the Hudson Institute. My name is Peter Rao. I'm a fellow here at Hudson. And uh, welcome to our panel on the geostrategic ramifications of the crisis in Turkey. A point or two on the schedule. We're scheduled to go until 1.15. We'll have, uh, after introductions, opening remarks by each of our panelists. And then uh, at around 12.45, we'll open it up to the floor for, um, for questions. So to begin, since the founding of the Turkish Republic in 1923, this is the fifth coup. Um, as all coups do, it came as somewhat of a surprise to uh, observers of Turkish affairs, even if it was not a uh, total shock. The media has given us much of the blow-by-blow, -blow, the TikTok, if you will, of uh, the generating events of the coup, of the night of the coup, which uh, it so happened took place on July 15th, the Ides of, of July. And uh, we'd like to move into what the coup itself means for Turkish society and politics, what it says about Turkish society and politics, and perhaps most importantly, what it means for the West and for American and European security interests in the Middle East. Um, why is it important to have this discussion now? Well, quite obviously, there was, uh, there was the coup. But even more broadly, which is why we, uh, we titled this panel The Geostrategic Ramifications of the Crisis in Turkey, uh, there are a broad set of trends in play, I think, in Turkey as sort of a scene setter before we get into the discussion. There is uh, uh, the good and, uh, and maybe the not so good, the uh, healthy trends in Turkish society and economy and politics and some of its vulnerabilities. Much as Turkey is situated as a swing player between Europe and the Middle East, uh, so too Turkey has trends that are desirable and undesirable. The good is that it boasts the largest middle class in the Middle East that powers an $800 billion economy, one of the 20th, 20 largest in the world. It is heavily integrated uh, with the European Union. In fact, Germany is by total volume Turkey's largest uh, trading partner. There's the Mercedes-Benz uh, plant outside of Istanbul, south across the Sea of Marmara and uh, Bursa. There is the Bosch facility. Um, Hugo Boss is in Izmir. Uh, Turkey, of course, is a member of NATO, and within NATO has the second largest uh, <coughs> army. Um, Turkey is, at least in name, a constitutional democracy um, and acts as an important transit, uh, transit player for uh, Central Asian energy that flows from the pipeline at Baku across uh, Anatolia to, uh, from the Caspian Sea to the Mediterranean to Chehan. So Turkey is important um, and undoubtedly a, uh, a, 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 a key country in American security considerations. But it also, as we know of late, has, uh, has uh, experienced some, some tumultuous uh, events. First of all, it's located uh, along the border with Syria, which it has a 500-mile border with. It's fighting uh, a dual war, one against ISIS. Recall last month the bombing at the uh, international term terminal in Istanbul at the airport and against the PKK, the Kurdish terrorist group that has plagued Turkey now uh, for decades. Turkey's government is quite literally in a state of emergency, and uh, purges have dominated worldwide headlines now for, uh, for the last 10 days to two weeks. So um, to discuss uh, Turkey's situation, the good, the bad, and the strategic implications of where Tur Turkey sits today, we have three distinguished panelists, all from Hudson Institute. Uh, to my far left is Eric Brown. Eric is a senior fellow here at Hudson. Uh, he just returned recently from Turkey, one of his many trips to uh, the region. 
And uh, Eric is the co-editor of Hudson's journal, Current Trends in Islamist Ideology. He has, over the years, directed several research and analysis projects on the Middle East uh, for the U.S. government, and uh, is currently focusing on U.S. alliance building and maintenance in the greater Middle East from the Maghreb to the Asia subcontinent, which, of course, includes uh, Turkey. To his right is uh, Hillel Fratkin, who's a senior fellow here at Hudson. Hillel is a uh, longtime scholar of classical contemporary Islam and has been tracking the uh, general milieu from which the AKP has arisen for many years now. Um, in fact, I was just reading some of his work uh, earlier today, and I noticed that he said some years back that in Turkey, nationalist ideologies are giving way to the ideologies of Islamist inspiration. So uh, I look forward to seeing if Hillel still thinks that's the case and what his take is on, uh, on Turkish politics today. He, too, is on the masthead of current trends in Islamist ideology. And to my immediate left is uh, Craig Kennedy, a senior fellow here at Hudson. Before joining Hudson, he was for 18 years, starting in 1995, the president of the German Marshall Fund of the United States. And about a decade ago, he opened the, uh, the Marshall Fund's office in Ankara. And at the time, the lead in the, one of the Wall Street Journal uh, articles discussing uh, the opening of the office was that Craig Kennedy, president of the German Marshall Fund of the United States, has a new passion of explaining the importance of Turkey to Europeans and Americans. So I hope that passion still exists today. <laughs> and Craig, I'll let us, you uh, lead us away. Well, uh, thank you so much, Peter. It's a, it's a real privilege to be with two people who know, frankly, a lot more about the subject than I do. Mine's a very kind of practical experience, having worked in, um, in Turkey in various ways over the past, I guess, 15 years. Um, most of the discussion around Washington starts out with something about the coup, but I think what's really interesting is that this botched coup has very quickly been overshadowed by an incredible seize of power by President Erdogan and his forces within Turkey. Um, this current situation is the culmination of a long process that, became, that began a long time ago, Frankly, I think you could have seen the roots of it back when uh, Erdogan was the mayor of Istanbul. And while he championed civilian control of the army, press freedom, and other liberal values, those were the things that I was passionate about explaining, um, he has also had a very strong authoritarian streak uh, almost from the beginning. I always tell the anecdote that I hosted him at a a big conference with three or four U.S. senators in Istanbul in 2004, alongside the NATO summit. He gave this very reasonable Western-oriented uh, speech. Everything was very calm. And then a Turkish journalist asked what Erdogan considered an inappropriate uh, question. And he went on a tirade where the translators stopped translating because they didn't want us to hear. Uh, but one of my Turkish neighborhoods neighbors uh, turned to me and said, he just said that he hopes that someday we hang that journalist. Um, now, I think he was just joking that day. Uh, but there's always been this strong rhetoric. He, he has a very populist side to him that um, that you've all seen. If you've seen the pictures of him standing on top of, of buses, which happens to be the favorite place for rallies for him, 
he has this rhetoric that is bound to ignite his followers. He's also famous for a quote that he made about eight years ago when he said, democracy is like a train. When you get to your destination, you jump off. Well, he seems to have jumped off the train a bit early since his destination, a more religiously dominated state, allied with similar states in the region, has not quite been achieved. Nonetheless, in the past two and a half weeks, he's really proved his authoritarian bona fides. Military, he sacked thousands of officers, including the ones that are most experienced in fighting terrorism. Government agencies, education ministry, other ministries where Gulenists, the followers of Fethullah Gulen, who resides here in the United States, supposedly hold sway. He's gone through the judiciary, the universities, media. Yesterday, they rounded up 47 journalists, I believe, NGOs and schools. Now, these actions will have major implications for the United States, and I'm going to leave it to my two colleagues to talk about that. But the consequences and challenges for Europe may be bigger and even more immediate. As you all remember, Angela Merkel famously, about less than a year ago, did a deal with Erdogan to stop the flow of refugees coming from the Middle East and elsewhere into Europe. And the deal was really simple. Erdogan was going to block the main land route into Europe, which would take people over to the European side of Turkey, and then either into Bulgaria or Greece. And in return, Merkel, on behalf of Europe, unfortunately she didn't consult the rest of Europe about this, offered three things. One, money to take care of the refugee camps and other things as necessary in the billions of euros. Second, visa-free travel into Europe. And the third was the restart of EU accession talks. Well, Turkey's done its part. It reduced the flow tremendously, and it's pushed the refugee path out into the Mediterranean, which is both more difficult and where there can be interventions that can be much more effective than trying to track down people racing through the mountains of Bulgaria. Europe, strangely enough, hasn't done its part. It hasn't delivered the money. Yesterday, Erdogan, at one of these rallies, denounced Europe for basically reneging on their promises and asked, when am I going to see the money? But even more importantly, they really haven't moved at all on either the visa-free issue or the restart of the accession. Both of those are almost impossible given the actions he's taken. And what you're going to see is a real challenge now to how Turkey is going to relate to Europe. They're undoubtedly going to threaten to open up the spigot and start letting more refugees and others pass through the country. That will, in turn, create a crisis in Europe. The various terrorist acts over the last months 
combined with just the impact of having two and a half million refugees enter Europe, a place that doesn't absorb refugees with quite the same, I don't know, energy as maybe some other places do, will really put everything on edge. There's a big north-south division in Europe. Most of the refugees ended up in either Germany or Sweden. Neither of those countries will take many more. So where you put them. On the other hand, the southern countries are all complaining that they're expected to do all the policing and checking and so forth, and they have no resources. And in fact, both the Greeks and Italians have turned to Merkel and said, you know, you promised him 12 billion euros. Why don't you give us 5 billion to help us out on these little duties that we've been assigned? Germany in particular will go through a political crisis. This last week has been a very tough one there. And even though the polls show that Merkel has gained in political popularity, the fissures within her party and within the country have grown tremendously. More refugees will not help. And then finally, it's not clear how the rest of Europe will respond. There is no way you're going to give visa-free travel at this point to to Turkey, uh, given everything that's happened in recent months. So the negotiations with Erdogan will come down to how much money and maybe some other things that he <coughs> wants from them. But there's also a bigger long-term issue that has already really bubbled up in Europe. Europe is built on the idea that liberal values are universal values. And Erdogan has shown that he completely disagrees with that sentiment. He is going to uh, lead his democracy, as he put it uh, one time, democracy is, uh, is not a, a one-size sock. Uh, it, there's lots of variations of it. And I guess he's showing that he has plaid socks with strange sizes, uh, but it's certainly not the socks that we wear here in the United States. Um, you're going to see a battle over accession, and he's going to demand that more and more, not because he ever thinks that he's going to join Europe, but because it is his great rallying cry when he goes out and talks to his public. The Europeans don't want us. They've rejected us. That's why we have to find our own path. So I, I am, I'm going to be the, the, maybe the most optimistic of the three panelists. I think we've got a horrible mess on our hands. And it's going to get much worse. And there's no really clear solution. Uh, on the other hand, I'd rather be in the position of the United States than be in the position of Angela Merkel in Germany. Thanks, Greg. Hello. <laughs> Thanks very much, Peter. Uh, I'm just trying to figure out now exactly, uh, since uh, the standard you set for pessimism, <laughs> well, how, how to uh, get lower than uh, that standard. Uh, but, I, but it does incline me to say the following um, before uh, raising and, and, and trying to answer a couple of questions. And that is, uh, it is a very, I think this is both uh, a situation which is very um, 
horrifying but also very sad. I speak, I'm now speaking personally. I'm, uh, as Peter mentioned, uh, I'm a historian of Islam and uh, have long been fascinated and impressed by Turkish history, both Ottoman and Republican. And uh, this is a very, if this is where those stories are ending, it's not a very, very pretty place. Um, I wanted to uh, raise and uh, then address three issues, main issues. First, what is the meaning of the coup for Erdogan in Turkey? What is the meaning of the coup for the United States? And then, how might the coup oblige the U.S. to reconsider its Middle East strategy? So the first, what is the meaning of the coup for Erdogan in Turkey? Erdogan has called it a gift from heaven, and it is certainly a gift for him, uh, although I, not, I fear, for Turkey. It has already given him a great deal, and he means to make it a gift that keeps on giving. What has it given him, and what will it give him? The first side of this is, is political. What Erdogan has wanted uh, most on the political side, and he's been absolutely clear about this, is a transformation of the Turkish political system such that all power resides with him. This is uh, both in terms of the, the form of the government, but also in terms of pronouncements he's made. And this was clear prior to the coup in a variety of particular initiatives, which I'll note a few, which will um, I think, be familiar to many people here. First, initiatives to render the Turkish military no longer an independent factor in Turkish political life. Initiatives to compromise the independence of the judiciary and make it an instrument of his will. Initiatives to make all media subservient to his views. Prior to the coup, he had considerable success in all three, especially over, I would say, the period from roughly 2000, beginning in 2009, but especially accelerating um, after 2011. But he thought that full success would require a new constitution that would tra transform Turkey's government from a parliamentary system, the system it is ostensibly today, to what he has called a presidential system. The coup has brought him much closer to the subjective and total domestic power. At present, Turkey is under emergency rule. Uh, Erdogan is effectively ruling by personal decree. Uh, they started issuing various, uh, he started issuing decrees in consultation with the cabinet two or three days ago, and those have force of law. He is also in the process of removing all people from Turkish institutions whom he believes, whether he's got it right or not, oppose his will. These institutions include, of course, the military, the, purge, the arrests that have been made of coup plot, the uh, participants of the coup and other people who are going to be charged with having been party to it. But they also include the following. All the branches of the administration of law, every one of them, courts, uh, uh, district attorneys, in our <laughs> sense of the term, prosecutors, police, uh, includes also the media, uh, continuing a trend that existed before, as I mentioned, 
religious institutions, uh, including the Ministry of Religious Affairs, but also uh, imams uh, that are assigned to this or that mosque throughout the country, uh, schools, a uh, whole part of the school system has been essentially shuttered um, on the grounds that those schools are, belong to the Gulen movement, and the universities, all all academics have been forbidden to travel outside of the country. All deans have resigned. Uh, several, as of this morning, several university presidents have been taken, had been fired or taken into custody. Um, in addition to arresting thousands of people, he has sacked tens of thousands more. That's what I was describing before. He will now fill their places with his own people. As he put it in the case of the military two days ago, fresh blood. And that fresh blood will be uh, blood that he can count on. As the diversity of institutions indicates, Erdogan is not only after the transformation of the political system, but of society as a whole. And this is also not new. He aims to create what he calls a new and quote unquote great Turkey. And his vision for it derives from his own brand of Islamism. Now, where do we stand today? Presumably, Erdogan will try to push forward his constitutional project. That constitutional project, uh, without going into the details, requires either a referendum or, or a parliamentary vote. And up till now, neither has seemed to be doable. But uh, under the under flying high, so to speak, as he is now uh, through the coup, he may be able to advance that in the technical ways that the present constitution requires. But in the meantime, he has already achieved his goal de facto through emergency rule. He is sole authority in the country. And although the, the declaration of uh, de facto of emergency law has been for three months, uh, he may, uh, when three months are up, uh, get an extension. I believe he cited the example of the French uh, who have extended yeah. their emergency law several times since Balaclan. He has other levers, and I think this is also a very important aspect of what's going on in Turkey today and where it might be headed. One of the most important, it was important in the coup, but it continues, is the public mobilization of his supporters, whom he called into the streets the night of the coup, okay, but is told to stay there, to demonstrate day after day, which um, is, can no longer be simply considered an obstacle to a coup, but is, is designed really to intimidate uh, opponents and to lend support to his efforts. Um, as part of this, he's also encouraged citizens to inform on their fellows, which will also intimidate people quite a lot. Many people have referred to his wholesale purges as a kind of witch hunt. Um, but one should remember what he is after is a revolution. And before long, it may look like a reign of terror. So what is the meaning of the coup for the U.S.? If for Erdogan, the coup and its aftermath is a gift from heaven, for the U.S. it is a burden from hell. But I will take uh, Craig's point, maybe uh, more burdensome for the uh, Europeans. For many years, Turkey has been called a critical ally. 
that is to say, an ally crucially important to American interest. And it often was so in the past. Among other things, it was a member of NATO and therefore played a, a crucial role in the Cold War, and it possessed, and still possesses, NATO's second largest army. Post-coup, American officials have continued to call it a critical ally. But today, that seems to me more like a prayer than a statement of fact. To be a critical ally means at least two things, the will to be helpful and the capacity to be so. And neither, it seems to me, is true today. Erdogan bears the US ill will. Um, and I, here, let me cite a little language, not from Erdogan, but from this morning's uh, papers. Uh, let me see if I can find it quickly. Uh, that expresses itself at the moment in the demand that uh, the United States government extradite Fethullah uh, Gulen. So uh, the Prime Minister, uh, Ben Ali Yildirim, said this morning he gave an interview with the Wall Street Journal, and it was reproduced in uh, one of Erdogan's favorite papers, Sabah, um, this morning as well. He said as follows, the evidence is crystal clear. We know the terrorist culprit responsible for vicious attacks against us and the Turkish people. We are heartbroken at the way that the U.S. has treated this matter. We simply cannot understand why the U.S. US just can't hand over this individual. Um, that's another way of saying they just can't understand the rule of law, uh, <laughs> their own and ours. Uh, I have no doubt that if, uh, if they can produce evidence that's credible in a U.S. court of law, that uh, the extradition request may be granted. But that's what they um, have to do. Um, and uh, there's a question whether they will be capable of that. But there will be consequences if we do not set, turn over Gulen, which were also described in, uh, by the Prime Minister. America, um, okay, that's his, his standard of proof is uh, we, have, we don't have to give you documents. That's, that's not, you just have to take our word for it. Um, I'm sorry to do things this way, but it's, uh, I think there's one crucial thing that's important. Okay, I guess I'll have to just uh, try to remember it. Uh, basically what, um, what uh, Yildirim went on to say was, um, if we don't turn them over, uh, they will draw the conclusion that the U.S. is a hostile, hostile to them, and uh, this will, you know, this will not. They will not regard this as the behavior of an ally, and will react accordingly. Um, so that's the part that concerns uh, goodwill. But then there's the part that concerns capacity. Um, the cap capability of its armed forces for common purpose, it seems to me, is dubious. And this was beginning to become clear even before the coup. 
Um, for example, right now there's a, uh, an insurgency in southeast Turkey, uh, which the Kurdish arm, the Turkish army is fighting, um, not with particularly notable success. And as um, Craig was reminding me, uh, reminding us before, it's been a long time since um, uh, the Turkish army uh, operated outside of its own borders. It will be worse now because uh, of the purges in the ar the new purges in the army. One of the people who was removed was the commander of the second army, who was, which is responsible for addressing the, the PKK insurgency. Um, so, given that, uh, how my, my last question, and where I'll end, is how might the coup oblige the U.S. to reconsider its Middle East strategy? There are a lot of factors that may oblige a reconsideration. Some of them were uh, highlighted in an event here yesterday, which I also recommend to anyone that's interested in these in the subject. Um, most generally, I would say the uh, American Middle East strategy in the past was based upon a Middle East system of nation states. Some were allies, even friends, others were enemies. That framework, as uh, is obvious to lots of people, is fast disappearing. The dominant framework of today's Middle East, at least as one saw from the discussion of Lebanon, Hezbollah, and Syria yesterday, is defined by the conflict between Sunnis and Shiites. And worse still, um, from a variety of perspectives, Iran and its radical Shiite, Shiite allies are in uh, the ascendant, and they are our enemies. In these circumstances, a strong and well-disposed Turkey might have been tr a truly critical ally. But it, is, it seems to me now impossible to count on it. And I would say further that uh, regarding the threats that have been made, essentially threats that were made by Yildirim today and as before about uh, breaking off relations or uh, a much more hostile relation, I think um, it may well be that they don't expect to get Gulen. Uh, this the, the, the proposal, the, the demand is win-win. Is if they get them, fine. If they don't, they have grounds for um, essentially breaking with us. And um, one sign that they think they may have another place to go is the fact that uh, Erdogan is going to go to Russia next, not next week or the week after next uh, to meet with Putin. Um, uh, I would say also further uh, the, the question of the EU accession. It occurs to me that that's another thing they're preparing um, to, to be able to publicly break with any pursuit of that. And, and that arose in the context of the claim of the demands that have been made in the street that uh, the death penalty be restored to um, uh, in Turkey. So um, Erdogan said at the rally where this was raised, well, if the parliament gives them a bill to, to restore the death penalty, I'll sign it. Uh, that, as everyone knows, means that they cannot join the EU on its, uh, to violate the condition of EU membership to have the death penalty. So it may be that he's actually, you know, this would make the break clean. He would be able to declare it as a matter of principle. We're not, it's not that you turned us down, we, we turn you down at this point. I'll stop there. Thanks a lot.
Thanks. Um, I'll probably end up reinforcing a lot of what Craig and Hillel had said, and I hope to not recover uh, some of that ground, but, but rather to um, uh, elaborate a little bit on some, some points, some points that I think are very important. Um, anybody who looks at the map understands that the political future of Turkey affects the strategic construction of basically everything from the Persian Gulf to the center of Europe. And so what we're talking about today um, is obviously very consequential for world order as we've come to see it, as it's evolved over the last 80 years and, uh, and its future. Um, uh, and, you know, we haven't yet really begun uh, the, the, the debate in Washington because there's an enormous political uncertainty here in our own country over what our own future politics and our own future foreign policy should come to look like. I mean, after all, the Republican nominee for president is openly questioning the vitality and the importance and the, and the, uh, the, the utility of the NATO alliance going forward. There's a lot of uncertainty as well over whether Mrs. Clinton will govern like a traditional Truman Democrat <coughs> who will invest heavily in alliances and see their strategic value or importance or whether instead she will govern and pursue a policy in a very different direction. But while I think it's important that we begin to have a discussion now over who lost Turkey or where did this all go wrong, it's also very important to ask whether or not this relationship is salvageable, and if so, how, particularly because of the geostrategic importance of Turkey and uh, of the bedrock sort of importance of the, of the U.S.-Turkey alliance going forward. So what we have now, um, as we've seen, is a breakaway faction in the Turkish army uh, attempted to overthrow a democratically elected government and in the process slaughtered, uh, killed a lot of innocent civilians. Um, and here in Washington, there's been a lot of reflections over already. There's been a lot of deep reflections over, well, why did this coup fail? Um, and this has actually been a question that has sort of dominated the discussion. I don't think this is the right question. Um, and I think, in fact, uh, Turkey itself and the U.S. would be better served to ask, well, how can counter-coups be made to succeed? Um, because uh, what, what is clear now is that Turkey will require um, a, a, a round of, of deep investment and in nation-building and state-building in order to recover from this uh, this period. Uh, um, uh, what we've seen in Turkey, the crisis has exposed uh, deep fissures, uh, a deeply polarized society, and a weakened state. Uh, the optimistic analysis has pointed to how uh, the various um, major parties in Turkey, and not just AKP, has rallied behind the president. They came out into the streets to protest against this military coup. Um, and indeed, all parties have come to embrace uh, a, a basic principle of democratic, modern democratic and republican government that, that military should be, should be subordinated to civilian rule. This it strikes me as a real opportunity for a political leadership that would want to restore uh, the Turkish Republic. Um, but it's also clear right now um, that the political leaders in Ankara are not quite thinking this way. Um, there, there, there would be a real opportunity uh, in Turkey uh, right now to address what was, has been, in a way, the fatal flaw of the modern Turkish Republic. And that's what um, uh, it was founded on a very exclusivist notion of ethnicity. 
Um, and uh, there is a real opportunity now to expand that and to try to uh, invite national reconciliation, among other things. But Erdogan has shown very little appetite um, for this project, and uh, uh, indeed he's shown very little uh, lack of empathy uh, for uh, his various political opponents. Um, and uh, it, it, it looks on many levels uh, that... Um, He's actually exacerbating uh, this polarization within Turkish society. He is, uh, as we know, a very shrewd politician. I think at the end of the day, uh, what makes him tick is his desire to acquire and to maintain power. And he's shown a capacity to turn on the dime uh, over, uh, over the last decade uh, whenever it suits uh, his own uh, political purposes. He did this in 2008 when the bid to join Europe uh, had lost a lot of its luster for a wide variety, a wide segment of the Turkish Republic because of the rolling financial crisis. He did this again in 2011 when Turkey noticed a, a huge opportunity in the region to refashion Turkey's relationships with a variety of countries that were uh, 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 racked by the Arab uprisings. And he wanted to create a new order, if you will, in, in the region with Turkey at the center of that. Um, when that effort to dominate the region from Turkey uh, uh, proved to fail, uh, he's demonstrated a great capacity to purge members in his own party, including Davutoglu, and to basically blame them for the failures of, of the last few years of, of, of Turkish foreign policy. Um, so there's been a view here um, that that... Erdogan may emerge from this coup uh, much, much more powerful. Uh, but in fact, uh, what we've seen is that he may actually emerge um, uh, uh, in a position where he's, he's going to have much less uh, resistance, much less of a check on his desire to pursue his own personal ambitions, and that he might actually in the process end up weakening the Turkish state uh, 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 and this is going to bode very poorly uh, for Turkish capacity, Turkey's capacity to deal with what are, I think, the core national security challenges which it's facing. The first is that um, uh, uh, it's, not, it's not been commented on a lot, um, but um, uh, to the extent that people in Washington are talking about the fight against ISIS, it's mostly talking about Syria and Iraq. But in fact, uh, the ISIS movement has spread uh, considerably into Turkey itself. And um, uh, there's, in fact, some polling that has been done by um, an Ankara-based think tank called the Global Strategy and Policy Center, which found a significant portion of the Turkish, uh, of the Turkish population views ISIS um, as, uh, as not a terrorist organization, but in fact as uh, a legitimate state or country um, and uh, also uh, 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 as a, a, a caliphate. Uh, and, and this polling, uh, I mean, the, the numbers are, in fact, quite staggering. It suggests that 7.4 million Turks disagree that ISIS is a terror group. Uh, nearly 7 million people in Turkey believe ISIS is a state or a country, and of these, 4.8 million believe that ISIS is, in fact, the caliphate. Now, there's many different ways to gainsay polling like this, but what it certainly suggests is that there's a significant element in Turkish society that has mentally and spiritually detached itself from the republic, and as Halal had said, also from uh, the state-based system, which had been the bedrock of order in the Middle East for 
the last uh, 80 to 100 years or so. And what's also true is that any political leadership in Ankara, if it wants to, uh, assuming that it wants to address this problem, assuming that it sees this as a national security threat, will need a variety of state institutions, from the military to the religious institutions to the mosques um, to the educational uh, institutions to be able to uh, implement a whole-of-government and whole-of-society approach to be able to roll up um, uh, and to defeat the ideas which are animating uh, the spread of ISIS. This is ISIS. Um, this is to say nothing of al-Qaeda um, uh, uh, and Jabhat al-Nusra, which, uh, according to a variety of different Turkish analysts and politicians that I spoke to on my last trip there, is viewed with a much, much uh, more lax perspective than ISIS is, um, uh, in part because Jabhat al-Nusra was always seen as being um, uh, an important um, uh, uh, Turkish proxy or potential ally in the struggle against Assad as well as in the struggle against Kurdish forces. So the counter-coup and Erdogan's efforts to purge these various institutions of state are in fact weakening uh, Turkey's defenses and its natural indigenous capabilities to be able to deal with the challenge that ISIS poses to it, both externally and internally. Beyond this, though, um, the, probably the larger and more serious um, uh, uh, challenge facing the future viability of the Turkish Republic uh, is, in fact, uh, the Kurdish issue, uh, uh, as was mentioned. Now, there's a view in Turkey, and it's also a view shared by a number of Washington analysts as well, that the war in the southeast was certainly triggered by um, um, uh, radical elements within the Kurdish movement. Um, uh, it was certainly the ceasefire was broken and various radical elements by attacking uh, Turkish police forces had uh, resumed um, uh, uh, the, the, the fighting that has been ongoing. Um, but then there's also, in addition to this, a view that this war has proven um, to be politically useful uh, for Erdogan and for his effort to stitch together various um, elements of the Turkish uh, uh, ruling elite, um, uh, that he's managed to use this war in order to uh, hold elements of the MHP, uh, which he's needed in order to pursue his own uh, uh, personal aggrandizement and the, and the aggrandizement of his own ruling faction. He's obviously used this war as well um, uh, to, uh, to be able to uh, bring the military back um, uh, uh, from uh, the margins where uh, the AKP had earlier relegated it. And uh, now that the uh, military is back, of course, he's begun to pay for this. Um, I think one of the things that we'll find out in the fu future is that um, perhaps one of the things that had animated uh, some of the rebels, uh, some of the, the uh, some of the, the coup leaders, was uh, a frustration over, in fact, Erdogan's policy in the southeast and the heavy-handedness of that policy. Um, uh, uh, the policy itself, the the, the strategy, in a way, uh, is based upon a, a failure to read the dramatic changes that have taken place in Kurdish society over the last 20 years in the southeast. And it's also based upon um, a, a very short-sighted and myopic view of the future of the Turkish Republic. The population in the southeast uh, is swelling. 
um, uh, the population in the southeast is much, much more urbanized than it's been historically. This is not the rural Maoist-based insurgency that the Turkish state needed to deal with in the 1980s. It's instead, instead something much, much more politically sophisticated, something much, much more moderate, something much, much more interested in sort of engaging in a material and economic and commercial way with the Turkish Republic as it stands. It's very clear on the basis of the analysis that the only way to actually solve this rebellion is to try to find some sort of political settlement. Um, uh, and I've spoken to a number of people in Turkey who said that back in 2013, there was a review going on both in the government and uh, a parallel review going on outside of government over how to take the ceasefire which had existed between the Turks and the Kurds and to institutionalize that and to try to enlarge that and to deepen it going forward. Many of the recommendations which had been proposed to the Erdogan government to find a political settlement, it turns out, had been rejected by him. Um, and unfortunately, many Turks and many Kurds are paying the consequences of that right now. Um, uh, uh, this uh, raises a lot of questions, both in Turkey and here in the United States, about the future viability of the Turkish Republic. Um, I've spoken to some Kurdish political leaders from Turkey who, among other things, said to me, we certainly do hope for a political settlement with the Turkish state. But at the time being, uh, that's not on offer. And insofar as we don't have one, we have other options. We have other options. Um, uh, and this, of course, doesn't bode well um, uh, for Turkey's uh, future stability, uh, let alone uh, its capacity to be a contributor to order. Um, it also doesn't bode well for the future of the U.S.-Turkey alliance, because at the end of the day, the U.S.-Turkey alliance was based upon Turkey's capacity to be a contributor to the order, uh, to the order in the Middle East. Uh, if not an active contributor to Middle Eastern order, then at least a strategic barrier between Middle Eastern disorder and the rest of the world. And now Turkey's capacity to act in both ways has been breaking down. And uh, its capacity to actually be a useful ally uh, to the United States and to others um, uh, is being broken down insofar as it's increasingly itself becoming victim to or consumed by the various disorder that, is, uh, that has racked other societies in the Middle East. So I'll end on that note. And uh, back to you. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Eric. Let me, uh, let me invoke my moderator's privilege and ask... Uh, each of you a question related to your remarks. I'll start with Craig. Uh, the night of the coup, I was, uh, I was walking past the White House, and I noticed that there were maybe two dozen Turks gathered outside with Turkish flags um, and some television. At the same time, I was uh, listening to German radio out of Berlin, and the reports out of Berlin was that the, the Tiergarten, the main park in Berlin, which is somewhat akin to Central Park in New York, was so packed with, uh, with Turks that uh, one couldn't get anywhere near the Brandenburg Gate, which uh, uh, suggested and occurred to me that there's a, there's a whole dimension to, uh, to German-Turkish relationships that aren't existent in the U.S.-Turkish relationship, and that's the some 3 million Turks that live in Germany. And, of course, Germany is, I think, the key player in uh, the European-Turkish relationship. So could you address what the... Uh, what the dynamic is in the in the diplomatic relationship between Turkey and Germany that the uh, the Turkish population in in Germany creates? Well, it 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 plays a very important role 
and in several different ways. First, there's a set of, uh, I guess you'd call them assimilated Turks who have entered political life and play a very important role. One of the leaders of the uh, Green Party, Cem Özdemir, is a good example. And there's um, uh, one a young guy who's uh, really the voice of uh, Kurdish Turks in. Uh, in uh, Berlin is uh, now a member of the Bundestag and quite an outspoken uh, force. Within the SPD, it's a very important faction that goes back to the days when so many of the mine workers in Essen and elsewhere came from uh, Turkish immigrant backgrounds. But in some ways, the bigger story is the unassimilated, unintegrated part of Germany uh, you can still go to lots of neighborhoods in Berlin or Stuttgart or elsewhere, and you'll hear Turkish being spoken by people who've been born in Germany, who have lived there their whole lives. Um, if you get on one of the uh, flights, I think there's like four a day from Stuttgart to Istanbul, a lot of Turkish workers at Daimler, by the way, uh, you know, you'll you actually think you're you're on a bus going to some place in Anatolia. Uh, it has a very um, uh, it feels much more Turkish than it does German. Uh, Erdogan has played this in a, a very big way. He um, makes sure that there's uh, Turkish television available in much of Germany. He goes there and he gives very um, strong populist uh, speeches about uh, respect for us, meaning Turks, uh, to people that, many of whom were born in Germany. Um, he very controversially uh, proposed, what, three or four years ago, creating a Turkish university in Germany. Um, so, you know, there is this internal tension this is not, though, what causes the real fissures in Germany right now. It's much more the new uh, crowd that has shown up from uh, Syria and uh, elsewhere. Uh, but the Turkish population does serve, in a way, the way any ethnic uh, lobby in the United States might uh, play. They have strong feelings. They uh, want to see Turkey being treated fairly. Um, when they do, when uh, uh, when they do kind of cross policies, um, so for example, what was it six weeks ago when the German Bundestag passed a resolution condemning Armenian genocide? Uh, four or five of the Turkish German members of the Bundestag voted for it, and um, uh, at least. Two of them had to have police guards still have them because there were death threats and so forth. But so it's it's um, it's a complicated situation. Um, you certainly feel it when you're in a place like Berlin, uh, and not just in Kreuzberg, but in Nokon and and other parts of of Berlin. Um, and it, it will be something in the back of Merkel's mind as she's trying to figure a way out of this mess. Thanks. Um, Hillel, you've uh, spoke at great length about Erdogan's 
failings and its weaknesses. I've also heard you speak passionately about the threat the Iranian Axis poses to the U.S. and to the Western Alliance system in the Middle East. Erdogan, uh, despite all the, the issues you laid out domestically, is, has been pretty staunch in calling for a, a removal of Assad and a buffer zone in northern Syria and backed by a no-fly area. So do you think that uh, it's uh, within the capacity of the U.S., or do you think there's a tension between uh, pushing back on Erdogan and at the same time building a counter-Iran strategy in the region? And then if I could just pivot off of that, because I think it's related uh, to Eric, um, a lot of the American reporting and a lot of the uh, news commentary has been about Erdogan's options in the wake of the coup as far as uh, U.S.-Turkish relations go, denial of Interleague, for example, as a way to try to bring about the extradition of Gulen. But uh, what are the American options? What are the American policy, uh, po specific policy uh, opportunities or, or uh, policy options for trying to um, for trying to find, trying to craft the regional order that is that is stable and healthy for U.S. interests. Well, if you want to go first, okay. Um, look, I, I, on this on the question of Syria, um, I think it is true that it was one of the one of the areas in which um, Erdogan was sensible uh, in his proposal that a no-fly zone be established that. That was both uh, for humanitarian reasons, but it also would protect substantial forces that were opposed to Assad. Uh, and he had, in that particular regard, he has grounds to complain about the fact that uh, uh, the United States was unwill completely unwilling to do that. But uh, that uh, is uh, now very much water. Uh, uh, over the dam, and um, and I and it seems to me that that he knows that we know that uh, there uh, and it's a it's a function of what um, uh, what what is going on as we speak the negotiations between uh, uh, Secretary of State Kerry and uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov about uh, settlement in Syria and uh, which preserves Assad and. Um, uh, already a couple of weeks ago, maybe it was three weeks ago, you, there were statements by Erdogan suggesting, or people within the government suggesting that their view of, of Syria might be evolving, and I assume that has something to do with going off to uh, see Putin in, on, I think it's August 9th, that, that that's over as far as the Turks are concerned, unless we want to reopen it, then there is no, no inclination on the part of, of uh, present administration to reopen it. Um, so I don't see how uh, being nice to Erdogan will help us in that regard, uh, unless, but, unless we change policies. What I would like to say, though, is that it bears the troubles that can come to them, to us, and so forth, bear, and including with respect to the, the Iranian issues. Um, uh, by commenting on, I thought, a very important point that Eric made, which is that um, Erdogan has always wanted to be the master of his house. That he made clear. And I would say he is now the master of his house. Uh, the only problem is that that house looks a little damaged and uh, and it's it's 
It's damaged internally for the reasons that Eric said. It's not clear that the the prosecution of a uh, war against the PKK in Southeast Turkey will succeed, in which case it's possible to imagine the partition of of Turkey. Uh, I mean, I won't be by agreement. It's just that the Southeast will separate. And it's also a problem because Erdogan has not only wanted to be the master of his own house, he has wanted to be a, a regional master. And um, as Eric also observed, it has been a huge failure at that. Uh, he could decide in the present circumstances, well, at least I got one of the two things. I can at least settle, you know, I, I, I should be satisfied with Turkey. But he's not a man who settles. Um, he, uh, he has, uh, he's not always skillful, but he never, ever seems to forget what he wanted to accomplish. And there was a particularly striking example of that in the, in the first 24 to 48 hours after the, after the coup. Um, I may recall, I have to, in order to explain that moment, I have to say, remind people that three years ago there were major demonstrations, they weren't Gulen demonstrations, over a park in Istanbul called Gezi Park, which Erdogan wanted to convert into a building. He wanted to build a building there in the form of a, it would be a replica of Ottoman barracks that used to stand on that spot. Um, it wasn't going to be a barracks, it was going to be a shopping mall, but it was going to be a, um, a, a Disney shopping mall, so to speak. Uh, he got thwarted um, and uh, by the demonstrations. Uh, he managed to suppress them and so, and so forth, but he didn't get to build his barracks. In the middle of the coup, he, among the things he declares he's going to do is get that barracks built. Now, when you think about it, this allegedly, you know, the whole future of the country is up up for grabs. This is not um, uh, an obvious uh, object of, of focus, but it was for him. And why was it for him? Because, I think two things. One is because he hates to have his will thwarted in any regard. And because that barracks was, that building is important to his vision of what he thought uh, he wanted, where he wanted to take Turkey as a kind of recreation of a glorious past, of which that building is an important symbol for reasons I won't go into now, but it has a very specific historical significance. And that's what he's always got his mind on, the, the eye on. The problem he has now is that Externally, um, he has um, has shown no capacity to uh, to affect his will. Not in Syria, not with Iran, not with the Russians, not even with the Israelis. Um, maybe with the Egyptians. I don't know. That's a, you know, his serial, um, you know, enemies. So, um, what is he? What what is he? going to do, and I think that this, i leave it back around to your question, he's going to look for a way to at least look like he's making a grand um, 
uh, a, a grand play, and he will look for whoever allows him to appear that way. If it's us, so if, like if we give him Gulen, uh, he'll declare a major victory. Maybe he'll be a little bit more friendly. Likely, but maybe. But I think right now he thinks other people can help him more, uh, Russians and Iran. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Eric. Yeah. I think, I think over the long range what we'd want to do is to figure out how to improve the prospects that Turkey can be reintegrated into the law-based order that the United States has invested an enormous amount diplomatically, <coughs> economically, militarily since the end of World War II to build. Um, on the flip side of that, we also have an interest in uh, preparing for the possibility that the U.S.-Turkey relationship is not salvageable. And we want to prepare for the possibility, um, though this clearly isn't a desirable situation, but we want to prepare for the possibility that that there could be a breakdown of order in Turkey itself, and we need to seek to figure out how to both contain that um, and uh, possibly limit the potential consequences and damages of that. I think to pursue both ends, um, uh, uh, we need to build up uh, a lot more American uh, strategic fortitude in the region, that is, real staying power and real influence. And this needs to be happening at a time when the sort of post-1991 geopolitical settlement in Europe as well as in the Middle East has been breaking down and being challenged by a variety of different actors, mostly by Russia as well as by Iran. And so the first order of business, I think, is to answer uh, those challenges and those pressures. Um, and that means deepening uh, what has started now under the Obama administration. Uh, that means deepening our commitment to hardening uh, everything from the Baltics down to the Eastern Mediterranean, our allies there. Uh, hardening them not just militarily, uh, that is through a revitalized and reinvigorated NATO alliance, but also trying to figure out how to harden them politically and economically. Um, we have enormous opportunities to build a sort of sub-regional uh, security architecture in the eastern Mediterranean, uh, which would uh, allow us to be able to, um, uh, to potentially deal with any, uh, the, the continuing fallout uh, uh, in Syria, as well as uh, 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 at least create a more uh, viable sub-regional order that, that should be attractive and, and should, over time, um, uh, uh, create a model for, for, for others uh, to look toward. Um, uh, this also means that we have to think seriously about positions. Uh, we have to be very clear with the Turks that uh, while their geography matters and that Incirlik obviously matters for maintaining tempo against ISIS in, in, in Syria and elsewhere, uh, that we also have positions to fall back to. And that means uh, that we should actively seek to build upon our relationships with the Jordanians, uh, with the various Eastern Mediterranean countries that I mentioned, uh, as well as with Iraq and with the, the Kurdish polity in northeastern Iraq. Um, those uh, are countries uh, which are desperate for our help, for our assistance, uh, not just military assistance, but political and economic assistance. And now's the time to think very clearly about a long-term strategy to build them up and to bolster them over time. Uh, we have opportunities there. Uh, our opportunities to do the same in Turkey have been uh, greatly diminished as a consequence of, of uh, Erdogan's uh, rulership, leadership there. Um, and we need to look at other options. Uh, 
about how to build a more viable uh, security uh, uh, architecture in the region. So that's how I would think about this to begin. Thanks. All right. Well, uh, I know I've deprived the audience of a, a lot of time to ask questions, but if we have a few, um, we'll start right there. Yeah. If you could introduce yourself, too, please, and um, keep your questions short and direct them to somebody, that would be great. Thanks. Hi, I'm Rebecca Ash. I'm a former intern at Hudson. Um, I have a question for Hillel um, about Gulen. Uh, to me, it seems, I mean, Gulen is very much a straw man, and that Erdogan is using him to sort of purge the government and do what he wishes to do. Um, so why use Gulen at all? Why Gulen specifically? Uh, maybe I'm just, I don't know much about the history there, um, but why does he need to use Gulen to, to, to do this when it seems like he could do it very well without Gulen? Uh, it's a good question, uh, but, uh, but Gulen occupies a special place in, in his universe. First of all, he was once a friend or an, at least uh, an ally, and uh, one always feels extremely, especially bitter about friends one falls out with. Uh, but I think what he really blames him for is not this coup. Uh, in the first place, it's... it's We'll see what kind of uh, evidence um, uh, the Turkish government, quote-unquote evidence, comes up with to link Gulen personally to this coup. But I would be extremely surprised uh, if um, if there is anything that stands up. What he blames him for, and even there I'm not sure he's, he was responsible, is for the coup of December 2013. And that when... People uh, in the judiciary, the prosecutor's office, brought charges against ministers in his cabinet and also people in his family, which he handled by firing everyone and um, getting rid of it. But that that was a, that was in a way a more serious threat. Um, I know it doesn't sound as serious as airplanes and tanks, but I think it was, in fact, a serious threat. Um, and that's what he probably blames him for. Um, and, I, um, but, uh, and that's why he, he, he wants him. He either wants him on his terms, or he wants to be able to um, attack us for not having surrendered him. It's a win-win win for him as, as he sees things. Gentleman in the back. My name is Rob. Um, it's been my experience that, this is really more for Eric, that um, the State Department specifically did not, I mean, they were very well aware of all of the things brewing in Turkey over the last several years, but there has been, for whatever reason, um, an unwillingness to confront it head on early on. And I don't really see that getting, becoming any different. So um, for whatever reason, because if, we reward Erdogan, he's mad, and he takes advantage. If we don't, he takes advantage. So going with your strategy of, you know, kind of working on the perimeter to kind of put pressure, I mean, at some point, you have to address the bull in the china shop. So so what does that look like? When does that happen? Um, and do you think that there is institutional political will within the government to do so? Yeah, I mean, 
Listen, there's not, there hasn't been much institutional and political will within the government, and, and uh, the fish rots at the top. Um, it rots from the head, and, and that, that, that we hope there will be much greater clarity in the next administration for addressing the bull in the china shop. Um, uh, I know for a fact that our political allies in Turkey, by which I mean liberals and, and in the broadest sense of the word, modern Republicans, um, uh, uh, have been uh, increasingly um, uh, grown increasingly despondent, and they've been weakened by our behavior uh, over the last, uh, particularly over the last three years since Gezi, uh, when Erdogan unleashed uh, this campaign of polarizing uh, various peoples who have stood up against him, uh, um, of, of attacking him, excoriating and impugning their integrity and their commitment to the republic. So if the United States doesn't reverse this, um, then I don't really expect any European leaders to do that and to defend these principles. Um, and so that will be a, uh, obviously a contributor. It will abet and facilitate Erdogan's own domestic power grab, and it will weaken our political allies in Turkey over time, and we'll have to live with the consequences of that. Worse, the Turks will have to live with the consequences of that. Um, uh, so uh, this, this obviously is an issue that needs to be addressed here at home. By the way, on the question about Gulen, I mean, everybody understands that uh, uh, Erdogan's um, secular and leftist uh, opposition is, is weak and divided, and he understands that. And he's mastered the various instruments to keep them off foot and, con and to keep them divided. Where he faces a real challenge is on the right, by which I mean both the political white right as well as the religious right. Washington has made a lot of fuss in recent weeks about the so-called the, the personal dispute between Gulen and Erdogan. But at the end of the day, the dispute between, I think, Hizmet and the Erdogan faction within AKP is also deeply ideological and deeply political. It's very clear that um, this is not to absolve um, uh, some actors who are broadly affiliated with the Hizmet movement from their uh, alleged uh, involvements in Ergenekon and some of the other uh, political scandals which have racked Turkey in recent <coughs> I've specifically asked people involved in that movement, and they've said, we're sure that, that there are people within the movement who may have involved themselves in this, but this was, they were not acting uh, as, uh, uh, on direct orders from Pennsylvania, as Erdogan alleges. Um, uh, but the important thing to keep in mind is that um, ever, particularly since 2013, but this goes back for a long way, um, the teachings that have come up through Hizmet and many Hizmet-affiliated uh, religious intellectuals, deeply pious Muslim intellectuals in, in, in Turkey and elsewhere, are coming out in defense of national reconciliation with Kurds, reconciliation between pious Muslims and secularist Republicans in Turkey, talking about the importance of civic pluralism, about building a civil democracy. Um, uh, Erdogan uh, faces a real threat from this argument uh, for a man who partly has figured out how to derive political power from his capacity to use religious sentiment and to use religion uh, to consolidate that political power. So that's what I think is actually at the crux of this, uh, of this effort on him to blame uh, this current coup. It's at the core of this current effort to blame the current coup on, on, on his meth and on Gulen. I would, uh, if I can, second that in this regard. Um, the uh, one area in which Gulen competed with Erdogan, uh, or the movement competes with him, is in education. 
And uh, the Gulen movement has, or Hizmet has, a large number of private schools which are extremely popular because they are considered to be better. He tried to, uh, Erdogan tried to shut them down, I think a year, a year or 15 months ago. He was blocked by the courts. He won't be blocked anymore. Uh, he's, or, he's already closed them. And he withdrew the licenses of the 20,000 or so teachers that teach them. So, as Eric was saying, there's a, when you care about ideology, you care about education. And Gulen was a competitor in that regard. All right, let's, uh, let's take two final questions, and then we'll, uh, this gentleman right here. And uh, yeah, the gentleman in the back then afterwards. Adam Turner with the Endowment for Middle East Truth. Um, how does this affect the economy in Turkey, which I know is, has severe problems in economic bubble? Uh, who knows? <laughs> uh, the lira is... Uh, is uh, fallen. Um, it's not a question is uh, how, I mean I think the real question for the Turkish economy is what confidence uh, um, outside investors have in it. Uh, it requires uh, you know like like most countries of if its type of economy requires uh, its debt to be turned over and um, uh, or the question is whether um, the, the credit markets will will be how they'll feel about what's going on. It's not helped by the fact. I mean, maybe Erdogan will will pull back, but one of the things he has campaigned on is the lowering of interest rates. Um, on Islamic and other grounds, and he's got he's kind of permanently in a fight with the central bank about the interest rates. Well. Turkey cannot borrow money at 4%. It has to offer higher interest rates. And if he insists on this, if he, his newfound power leads him to think he can also control the winds and, and, and the seas, he may also think he can control interest rates, in which case um, uh, Turkey will, have, will suffer, I think, economically. Big part of the economic success of Turkey is always driven by foreign investment and the willingness of European, American, Chinese companies to come in there and make uh, uh, significant investments, usually allied with one of the big industrial groups there. In the last two weeks, um, people close to the government have been basically making the argument that Erdogan's stronger uh, stability, good time to make investments there. Uh, but a lot of the analytical groups are making the opposite argument that we talked about earlier, that the country potentially could be unstable, and especially the parts of Anatolia that often get the biggest amount of, of investment. Um, so you have groups like the Zorlu group that um, really have their, you know, they're in the heartland of that area. And um, that's that's what I would watch over the next three or four months, announcements on foreign investment. Well, I would add one other one other thing that has often pulled his, uh, or Turkish, should I say bacon out of the fire, um, where it was Gulf money. Mm. And they may be tempted now again to invest 
there are, I mean, he may be trying to hold them up for that, in that, you know, I'll, I'll go this way if you don't uh, put up the money. But they're not exactly flush either at the moment. And so um, that recourse may be either diminished or closed. All right, a very brief last question. Go ahead. Yes, Edward Roeder from the Sunshine Press. In 1980, the presidential election saw kind of parallel moves by rump governments in Iran and in the United States. In the U.S., it was the out-of-power Reagan campaign that was making overtures towards Iran. In Iran, it was the out-of-power uh, government of former Honcho Bani Sadr. And they both cut a deal which eventually ended part we know about with the release of the hostages upon Reagan's inaugural and not before. Do you see any possibility of this year some hocus-pocus spy versus spy games between factions in Turkey and factions in the United States uh, given the remarkable similarities between the statements of Erdogan and the statements of Donald Trump. Eric? <laughs> no. Uh, I, I, I don't see that uh, that either uh, Hillary or the Donald have much of a play uh, electorally with Turkey. They, they, there are other things that, uh, that where, the, where it's more front and center. I mean, the Iran issues, Syria issues, and so forth, but Turkey, I don't think so. All right, that's a hocus pocus is a great place to end. We can go back to uh, <laughs> watching the DNC coverage out of Philly. Thank you, everyone, for uh, being here, and let's welcome, uh, thank our panelists for their comments. Thank you. Thank you.